opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Conversation reparations, conversation reparations, conversation reparations. Welcome. My name is Brother Jumoke Ife Tayo. I currently serve as the Southeast Regional Representative of Encobra. We bring you this program twice a month, I'm giving you information and news about what's going on in, in the reparations movement and interviewing those people who are making history and who or have participated in making history or making our story, as we like to say, on the road towards reparations. So this is, show is brought to you by INCOBRA, the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America. Our website is incobraonline.org, incobraonline.org. So today we, we're going to have a conversation about what are some of the, uh, about a historical event, the We Charge Genocide Movement, but we're also going to bring it contemporary um, to an event that will be happening at the United Nations on September the 4th of this year. And so, as we said, and since we started this, I call it, I don't know, the second iteration of the of the conversation reparations, we had a, we were down for a few months and, and came back up. And, and just in that short period that we were down, you know, the reparations movement continued to even pick up even faster. And so what we decided to do was because there's so many things happening in the news about reparations and knowing that we couldn't cover all of them in every uh, episode. So we said, well, let's just give some news briefs about some of those. And eventually we will try to um, get some of those people on 
that are addressing um, the, these things that are happening in the news. So our first news story is that the Detroit City Council in Detroit has such a rich history in the reparations movement. Oh, my goodness. But the, So we're not surprised. The Detroit City Council considers putting reparations on the November ballot as a referendum. If approved, the proposal sponsored by the City Council President Pro Tem Mary Sheffield would ask voters on November, and I quote, should the city of Detroit establish a reparations committee to make recommendations for housing and economic development programs that address historical discrimination against black community, against the black community in Detroit, close quote. And so I understand that that bill is actually a follow-up to another resolution that was passed um, acknowledging uh, racial discrimination in Detroit. And so, um, again, as we've been talking about on the show, um, we're seeing reparations really unfold even faster at the local level, at the at city level, at colleges. And um, here is yet another example. Also in the reparations news, let's move over to California. And we talked about California um, passing its reparations bill. But now California is paying reparations to victims of forced sterilization in state prisons. The nation known as the land of the free once had a sanctioned eugenics program that inspired the Nazi Germany. Imagine that. California Governor Gavin Newsom has signed the state budget and included in that budget is $75 million in reparations for survivors of forced sterilizations of prison inmates allowed under the state's eugenics laws. Thousands of women, some of whom were sterilized without their consent as early as 11 years ago, are set to be paid in an effort by the state to make right its egregious and immoral sanctioning of a practice that denied incarcerated women the right to decide what to do with their own bodies. According to ABC 7, excuse me, according to ABC Channel 7, California will be the third state in the U.S. to pay reparations to the victims of forced sterilization and the first to pay, rep to pay them to women who were victimized while incarcerated. And I understand that also happened in, in your state, in North Carolina, right, brother? Oh, uh, uh, yes, it did. Um, it, it was uh, mm -hmm. a, a, in the news a lot. Um, a couple of years ago, well, it might have been maybe five or ten years ago. Uh, I'm not sure. If well, I'm they... saying your state, just for our listeners, we're talking about the state of North Carolina, which is where our uh, engineer resides. <laughs> Go ahead, brother. So I, I may not have understood your question, but North Carolina had a eugenics program that was going on while I was in high school in the 80s. It didn't end until the 80s. Yeah, and so I understand that, that you know, some bills were passed to compensate um, in some kind of way um, those women who were um, victim of, of, of those experiments. Yeah, it was and more that, than um, just women. It was more than just women, and um, it was us. It was okay. it was men and women, 
and it was people mm-hmm. that even your neighbor could call and say, hey, that teenager over there is very promiscuous. I think she might get pregnant or something. And it'll go before the eugenics board, and they'll vote on it, and they will force, forcefully have these people sterilized. Also, if you had a mental inf- infirmity, they would sterilize them. And so mm-hmm. when you was talking about in the previous story, a lot of people, they like to say, they like to compare the United States today and some of the people to Hitler and Nazi Germany, but they lack the understanding that it was the United States that inspired Hitler in the Nazis. It's true. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Yeah, this article referenced that as well. You're right. Yeah, so... I'm going to read a little bit more. Oh, my goodness. I can't even explain the overjoyed feeling that I have, but also the feeling of relief, said survivor Kelly Dillian, whose story sparked an investigation into the state's eugenics practices after it was featured in the documentary Belly of the Beast, told ABC. Quote, the advocacy, the journey of justice has we've been on has been 20 years for me, but for some survivors has been over 40 years, unquote. In fact, according to the Guardian, the history of forced sterilization in California dates back to 1909 and was reportedly the inspiration for eugenics programs in Nazi Germany, we just mentioned. But investigators found hundreds of women were victimized by the practice as late as 2010 even though it was illegal by then. So that was just uh, a few years ago. As for Dylan, her attorney obtained medical records showing that when she was an inmate in the, Cali- in the Central California Women's Facility in Chow Chilla in 2001, the then 24-year-old underwent what was supposed to be an operation to take a biopsy and remove a cyst, but surgeons removed her ovaries during the procedure without her knowledge or consent. And, okay, um, excuse me, trying to scroll down in this article here. All right, and, oh my goodness. Okay, the State New Reparations Initiative is in stopping at women like Dillian who were victimized in prison, also looking the right wrongs dating back to the early history of the practice. The new California reparation program will also seek to compensate hundreds of living survivors of the state's earlier eugenics campaign, which was first codified into state law in 1909 and wasn't repealed until 1979. The law allows state authorities to sterilize people in state-run institutions who were deemed to have what you just said, mental disease, which have been inherited and have likely to be transmitted to descendants. The law was later greatly expanded to include those suffering from perversion or marked departures from normal mentality. Well, what does that mean? Those targeted were often black or Latino women, though some men were sterilized as well. California established these egregious eugenics laws that were actually even followed by Hitler himself in the effort to curb the population of unwanted individuals of people with disabilities said the State Assemblywoman Wendy Carrillo, who introduced the bill to create the compensation program. She said in all, more than 20,000 people were sterilized in California 
including the historic case prior to 1979 and hundreds of additional cases in the prisons documented until 2010. Many of the historical survivors have since died, but the state believes about 400 are still living, about a quarter of whom are expected to apply for compensation. According to ABC, a coalition of organizations will be tasked with finding survivors, some of whom are still unaware they were sterilized in state prisons. Officials estimate individual payments of up to $24,000, starting with an initial payment of around $12,000. Some might find it difficult to believe that the undeniable evil practice of forced sterilization went on for so long and until so recently. But if you know America, it isn't as much shocking as it is typical of the nation's history of cruelty towards people of society. Excuse me. It isn't as much shocking as it is typical of the nation's history of cruelty towards people. Society deems less than, especially considering the most recent cases involve primarily black and Latino victims, according to the Guardian. Hopefully, every state in the nation with a similar history follows California and attempted to make amends for past evils. Hey, Brother Jamoke. I don't know if you had a further comment on that. Yeah, on a side Go note, ahead. you may have noticed this push against what they call critical race theory um, from right-wing yeah. Republicans and stuff. And this is really what it's aimed at doing is is keeping this history hidden. And, you know, it's just an anti-intellectual movement. And, you know, critical race theory is the intersection of race and law. And this is what we're talking about. These were mandated by law. These were lawful sterilization programs. And the last thing I'll Mm -hmm. add here in North Carolina, Haynes Corporation was implicated in that. You know, Haynes Underwear? Right. They were implicated in it in setting up these eugenics boards. Wow. Wow. And so, um, so much is coming out these days. We talked about that on an earlier show, too. So much is being revealed and, and hopefully not just being revealed, not so much just the truth coming out, but also some form of amends and redress is being made as we are, um, uncovering these stories or not even just uncovering them, bringing them to the forefront. Um, and bring, you know, again, there are uh, usually with most of these cases, there's always been some people that knew about them and even working and av- being an advocate for them. But now they're, they're getting more and more attention and some redress. So we are excited about that in the reparations movement. Um, next article, uh, next news story we want to talk about is the Virginia Theological Seminary. And um, actually, I visited that institution and met with the uh, dean who was over the, who is over the uh, reparations program a few years back. I'm not sure exactly, 2017, 2018. They um, uh, passed a resolution to put $1.7 million. I'm sure if I read this, it'll come up into a fund for reparations for um, people who were uh, enslaved workers or forced workers to work on, who worked in building the, the university as well as uh, maintaining the university after it was built. So their ancestors were enslaved workers. Now they're getting $2,100 a year in reparations. The campus of Virginia Theological Seminary, which is right outside of Washington, D.C., uh, Linda 
Thomas' grandfather worked at the Virginia Theological Seminary for more than a decade, first as a farm laborer before moving up to head janitor. Her grandparents lived in a little white house on campus with their four children, including her mother. But until two years ago, she was she had no idea that her grandfather, John Samuel Thomas Jr., had been forced to work at the school in Alexandria just outside of Washington, D.C. All I knew was that he grew up on the seminary, said Johnson Thomas, 65, who lives in Mitchville, Maryland. We knew there, there were slaves in Alexandria, but we didn't know the specifics. For more than a century during slavery, Reconstruction and beyond, the seminary used black Americans for forced labor between 1823 and 1951. Hundreds of black people were forced to work for little or no pay on the campus as farmers, dishwashers, and cooks, among other jobs. Back then, the faculty members and the students also bought their own enslaved people, said Ebony Davis, an associate for programming and historical research at the seminary. In 2019, the school announced it had set aside $1.7 million to pay reparations to the descendants of slaves who worked on its campus. Earlier this year, it made good on its promise and began handing out annual payments of $2,100 each to direct descendants of those who had worked there. Johnson Thomas and her two sisters were the first recipients. Fifteen people have received payments so far, and the seminary is expecting to compensate many more as they are identified. The cash payments began as conversations about reparations have rippled around the country since George Floyd murdered since George Floyd's murder last year. Some cities have proposed reparations programs while the House Judiciary Committee in April passed a bill which would create a commission to study reparations for descendants of enslaved Americans and recommend remedies. Some scholars of reparations say the seminary is the first such program in the country, but despite the promise of annual cash payments, its recipients were wary at first. I'm about to do something when I when I clip these articles to cut out this space. <laughs> All right, I'll be a little bit more efficient next time. I got a little bit more efficient this time, and we'll get a little bit more efficient each time. The seminary was founded in 1823 and has educated many leaders of the Episcopal Church. The seminary has genealogists tracking down workers' descendants. Since it announced the reparations and endowment fund in September 2019, the seminary has begun the Herculean task of tracking down direct descendants of its enslaved workers. It set up a task force. Genealogists pull over old documents to find relatives in the far-flung parts of the nation. And and when they do, another group takes over the process of reaching out to the direct descendants. The conversations can be difficult. The money is given to the family generation as closest to the enslaved person or Jim Crow era laborer, often the grandchildren or great-grandchildren. The seminary started cutting checks for the descendants when it described as shareholders in February. $1.7 million endowment is expected to grow and continue to fund future payments. Though no amount of money could ever truly compensate for slavery, this is a quote from Reverend Ian Markham, quote, though no amount of money could ever truly compensate for slavery, the commitment of this financial resources means that the individual, excuse me, means that the institution's attitude of repentance is being supported by actions of repentance, said Reverend Ian Markham, dean and president of the cemetery. It opens up a moment for us to it opens up a moment for us to reflect along 
long and hard on what it will take for our society and institutions to redress slavery and its consequences with integrity and credibility. The endowment acknowledges the seminary's past participation in oppression and comes as a school prepares to celebrate its bicentennial in 2023. Quote, as we seek to mark the seminary's milestone of 200 years, we do so conscious that our part is a mixture of sin as well as grace, Markham said. Quote, this is the seminary recognizing that along with repentance for passing, it also needs to be action. She hopes reparations will help change the dialogue on race. Ms. Johnson. Ms. Johnson, Johnson Thomas first heard about the reparations program two years ago when she learned her grandfather was one of the school laborers she was stunned. My first thought was disbelief, which is why I scheduled a meeting with the dean. She said her sister accompanied her for the meeting with Markham who explained why the seminary chose to issue reparations. Quote, his point was, we are equal people, and we realize we recognize the, the racism in our past. We know there is no amount of money that can rectify that transpired back then, but we want to do something towards him. Johnson Thomas said. This process has taught her about her grandfather, she said. She found out that while he worked at the seminary, he wanted to be a minister, but he could not get admission there because he was black. African-Americans were not allowed to attend the seminary until 1951. But that did not stop him from digging into the books at the seminary and driving his Ford Model T on his days off to preach at a nearby church. Before his death in 1967, her grandfather had fulfilled his goal and become a Baptist minister in Washington, D.C. Jonathan Thomas followed in his footsteps and is a Baptist minister, too. By pursuing my master's degree from Howard University in 2000, I studied in the library at Virginia Theological Seminary. I had no idea that it was the same campus that denied my grandfather the right to pursue an education, she said. So there's more, but I'm going to stop there on that article. And Well, I did some quick math, Brother Jamoke. Did you hear me? No, I didn't hear you. I said I did some quick math. Now, is that twenty one hundred a month for the rest of their life? I think that was twenty one hundred annual. Twenty one hundred annually, not twenty one hundred a month. Okay, yes. my bad. So we're not talking a whole lot of money here. See, twenty one. No, we're not talking about a lot. Of money. No, it's not. It's it's huh? not. It's not a lot of money. No, it's not. But I do believe we might have our guest on the line if you want to go ahead and introduce uh, our guest and what she'll be discussing. Um, sure. Uh, let me just give the brief headline of the other news story, and we can follow up with that on another show. So this has been in the news for the last um, couple of weeks now. The United Nations Human Rights Chief on Monday urged countries to, and I quote, fully fund comprehensive processes and taking a wide range of reparations and measures, unquote, to address the legacies of slavery, colonial rule, and racial discrimination. Michelle Bachelet presented to the United Nations Human Rights Council a landmark report launched after the killing of George Floyd in the United States and released last month. A year in the making, 
It hopes to build on the momentum around it intensifies scrutiny worldwide, the blight of racism and its impact on people of African descent. And I really think that's worthy of a show itself. So we're going to see how we may put together a show around this um, United Nations Human Rights Council uh, report and, 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 and declaration. All right. Uh, yeah. oh, we have our guests on the line? I believe so. Okay, great. So um, we, we mentioned at the beginning of the show uh, we charge genocide, and this we're at the 70th anniversary coming up in December of We Charge Genocide, which was really a profound um, movement and marker on the road for freedom and liberation and reparations for people of African descent as a group of activists took a document to the United Nations here in the United States as well as in Paris to um, declare the United States was practicing genocide against our people, against us, and that the United Nations should take some, should acknowledge this as well as take some actions to address this. And so we're going to um, talk with Empress Chi, who is just a phenomenal uh, woman and organizer, um, networker, and uh, is responsible for organizing the Million Woman March and continues to do great work in the Philadelphia area, really nationally and internationally, um, for liberation of people of African descent. So we'd like to bring her on and, and share with us what she's been doing around reparations and this um, We Charge Genocide movement. Sister Empress? Yes, greetings. Not hope tap. How are you all this okay. evening? Good evening. We're good. We're good. How are you? Oh, wonderful. Thank you for having me with you tonight. I'm loving what I'm hearing. <laughs> oh, very good. Very good. Um, what, what have you heard? <laughs> well, I heard I heard your reports. And, and of course, I, I think it's more of the synergy that, that I'm picking up on. You know, I, I like the format. I like the way you are, you know, disseminating the information. And, and that's very important because, you know, I'm, I'm into communication. So, again, uh, a lot of times it's not just the information, but how it's being delivered, how it's been disseminated. So, uh, you know, I like I like the style. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I think that's a compliment for someone who has a lot of years of experience in communication. Thank you. So <laughs> let's um, – well, I gave a little introduction um, of yourself. If you'd like to um, add to your introduction, or we want to, or we could just go right into um, discussing well, the. Yeah, if I may, I'd like to add a sure. little because over the years, I find that people have used, they've kind of had excuses as to why they would not, should not recognize the Million Woman March for the historic and um, groundbreaking contributions that, that it has done, that it started with and continues to do. So one of the things that has been brought to my attention is that, you know, no one knows who I am. Uh, well, not no one, but, you know, a lot of people don't know uh, the name Sister Empress Chi or Dr. Filet or whatever, and certainly no connection to that with the uh, historic Million Woman March. So I kind of, you know, made a pledge to my family in particular and, and those that are in some of my media circles that I would do better uh, to change that situation. And it wasn't so much intentional. It's just that I had no real interest 
uh, at the time in particular of being in spotlights and, you know, all this other stuff that the folks tend to do. That was never my intention. So for you not to know my name or not to be all popular, all that was cool with me because it was really about the work. But unfortunately, what I found is that, you know, people are out here uh, to rape you. And, and oftentimes the opportunist uh, reality goes into effect, meaning if there's no face and no representation in a certain kind of way, then they'll just take it and do what they want to do. And uh, those attempts have been made. And fortunately uh, for us, we've been able to pretty much neutralize it, even with the so-called Women's March uh, a few years ago. Uh, it created a lot of confusion, mm-hmm. which was intended to do. Um, that's because for many, the Million Woman March was not, you know, very common or well-known or they didn't even know it was still existing or whatever, which we have continued for 24 straight years, by the way. Uh, we've had our radio program for 14 straight years. Uh, but it's just that we, we never wanted to be like others in that um, integrity is very important for us. We've never had a grant. We've never had corporate sponsoring in 24 years. Uh, that was intentional. I mean, it, it certainly slowed some things down in terms of what we could have accomplished. But when the ancestors give you an assignment, you can do one of two things. You can accept it as is, or you can try to do something else. Well, for me, I'm not that foolish. So, it was designed a certain way, and it continued in a certain way. So with that said, um, I am indeed the originator of the historic Million Woman March. If anybody else tells you any differently, they're lying. Um, <laughs> and I have to say that because I've had people, I've even, brothers. Hold, hold, on, hold, hold on just a second. So, so, yes, you're listening to Black Talk Radio Network. We're at the um, halfway mark of our show you're listening to Black Talk Radio Network, and this is Conversation Reparations being hosted on the Black Talk Radio Network. All right, go ahead, sister. Thank you. And I'm going to cut that part short, but I just want to say I've literally had conversations with people who would sit and tell me, oh, you know, uh, I did so-so. With the, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the mother of the million women marching. I didn't be able to literally sit there not knowing who they were talking to. Wow. And say stuff that was just absolutely insane. Absolutely. So, so and, then, and then I just I hear you. So you're 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 rebranding yourself. You know, under, you know, in yes. America yes. in in this, you know, yes. society, you know, yes. important that absolutely. that, you know, absolutely. your image and brand and name is, is important. I understand you are operating from the perspective of an activist and I, I learned that from my father also who was very much a behind the scenes activist and he would push you know, the John Lewis's and the Jesse Jackson and those out front and did a lot of the behind-the-scenes organizing that people, you know, don't know about that, that's necessary to make stuff happen. Right. But, you know, his yeah. name isn't out there as much as some of those people's names are. But so I understand that perspective of being behind the scenes and, and getting the work done. But then it also comes a time when you have to put your name out there, you know, and, and you know, we used to joke about that when, when he was running for office. And he would say stuff like, when we organized, I said, no, Dad, you got to say when I organized. <laughs> right. I know the collective we <laughs> yeah. and the movement we and all of that, yeah. but people, you need to start now while you run a office. You need to claim some of your, your stuff. But anyway, right. let me get that getting us off yeah. track. Let's stay, we'll stay on the main highway. So, yeah, so we, <laughs> we, uh, we thank you for 
that monumental achievement of the Million Women March and, and what it, and what the movement continues to do. So why don't you just go ahead and tell us about the um, the upcoming event for September 4th. Why don't we just go ahead right into that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And as you indicated earlier, uh, Nana Jamoke, the 70th year, and, and again, th this is such a teachable moment, meaning this period of time. This is the 70th year that the great Paul Robeson and William Patterson did something that was absolutely incredible because of so many different reasons, but one very mm -hmm. simply, can you imagine accumulating hundreds of names, their ages, the locations uh, in terms of where they lived, uh, the, 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 the type of horrendous act that was uh, inflicted upon them, meaning lynched, murdered, be, be, beaten to death, uh, be it cops, be it, uh, 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 so, you know, some, just some white mob or something. That's what they did. So it's not mm -hmm. just, oh, they took a petition to the United Nations. Oh, yeah, they did. Oh, yeah, they did. But to compile data that literally gave you the names, the dates, the age of our people who were, you know, brutalized, victimized, et cetera, this is what they did in 1951. No Internet, <laughs> you know. Uh, you know, so... Again, why is this not something that we have embraced or, or have understood in 70 years to the degree that it has? Only in these past 70 years has there been, uh, to my knowledge, roughly three campaigns coined We Charge Genocide. And each one was, you know, very kind of like, uh, you know, a report. Uh, one group did go to Geneva, uh, but again, it was like a couple of months that they kind of did what they did. And interestingly enough, even though they focused on police murders and so forth, there was also another agenda. And the agenda was kind of talking about some other kinds of rights. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, and so my point is that Fortunately, as, as things would happen, we are blessed. Our people, uh, MWM in particular, and being the part, you know, being in this vanguard to to provide accurate, clear information about 1951, but also the things that are related or around that era. Um, here's another little tip, and I'm gonna go right into September 4th, 70 years ago. And, and this is connecting to what's going to happen in September. But we're also putting a call out to black women. Why? Because, again, 70 years ago, several black women made the call to Negro women. The call to Negro women was for black women or Negro women at the time to come together. As a result of a poem that was issued by the great Bea Richards, who many had probably never heard her name before, even though she's an award-winning actress, writer. She played Sidney Poitier's mother, and guess who's coming to dinner, and always uh, played dignified, honorable roles in her career, always. But anyway, she wrote a poem called A Black Woman Speaks in 1950. And in doing so, she talks about the issues of white supremacy, and white women and things of that nature, and why, you know, a black woman need to be saying something. In 1950, she 
introduced that poem in 1951 to a group of women who loved it. It was a mixed group of women, but they all loved it. But then some black women, Negro women at the time, said, we got to do something. And so roughly seven or eight came together initially, and they put the call to black, I mean, the call to Negro women. Well, it just so happened that a trial was coming up of a black woman who was being charged with murder. She was being charged with murder because, oh, she killed the white man that tried to rape her. So these serious women seized the time. Because during that time, a lot of black women were being raped, particularly by white men, and nothing was being said or done. But also the issue of violations of our people, period, was of concern. So to connect the dots for you, 1951, Black women came together, Negro women came together. We will do the same thing this year, but it's a difference, and here it is. We will be adding on to our agenda the issue of reparations. Now, they didn't say that in 1951. They did focus on the violence and abuse of black women and girls that wasn't being addressed by hardly any groups, even the civil rights group that were talking about civil rights violations. But to fast forward, let me just give you a few names of those women to show you how well-rounded this call was and the seriousness of it. The great Shirley Du Bois, of course, the wife of William Patterson, and her name just escaped me, her first name, but William Patterson's wife, who was the co-signer or the co-writer for We Charge Genocide in 1951 with Paul Robeson. Paul Robeson's wife was also a slender. Robeson was also one of the women in this group. But there's another name. Is anybody familiar with the name Audley Moore? <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Let me see now. 1951, roughly seven black women came together and put the call out. What was the call for? For black women or Negro women to come together to do what? Demand a meeting with the President of the United States. 1951. So they decided to go to Washington, D.C. in 1951, demanding a meeting with the President of the United States, but they held a conference first. Now, the President of the United States would not meet with them. However, he did send a representative, and they did put their issues out. The name of the group was called the Sojourners for Truth and Justice. And so now, my sisters, we're doing a reenactment, something similar, as well as the continuation, in honor of Queen Mother Moore, in honor of, oh, by the way, I didn't say that Audley Moore was, in fact, Queen Mother Moore. She was along with these women. So in continuing these legacies, the We Charge Genocide 21 is that combination of these 70-plus years because we've connected the dots, of course, with Mother Callie House. And so we use that changeable language, meaning we're not saying just reparations. We're not saying just restitution. We're also saying retribution justice as well as restoration justice, and not just in the context of the prison or the, or the uh, judiciary context that they have interchanging with uh, so-called victim and, and their accuser, blah, blah, blah. We're not talking about that sort of restorative justice, but 
The point being, to now bring things forward, and, and, and let me make this very clear, our position and statement is we are in full support of NCOBRA. That has to be made clear because, as I'm sure some know, you know, there are some issues or things have been said or, you know, things have been raised. Um, again, you, you can never dismiss the work of others, whether you agree with what it has achieved or what it's doing or what it didn't do or whatever. For black folks to try to uh, undermine the, the, the work the the Kazi, the sacrifices, the all that went with that. Um, that that's dishonorable, and we certainly would not make any attempt to do that. And so I want to put that on the table right here, right now. That what we're saying and doing with recharge genocide is because of Queen Mother Moore, because of. Paul Ropes and William Patterson, because of Malcolm X in 1964, who took uh, this plight to Africa, met with heads of state, addressed the African Union in, in asking for support for us here in dealing with the issue of human rights violations. So, so these are some of the connecting dots. Now, lastly, with the call to Negro women, we now, MWM, make the call to black women in our demand to meet with the President of the United States and the Vice President. Why? Because they said it was black women that were very instrumental in getting them in office. Mm-hmm. We're saying, oh, thank you. Wonderful. So now we want to meet with y'all. And we have five areas that we want to talk to y'all about. And one of them is reparations, reparatory justice. What are we talking about here, President Biden and, and, and Vice President Harris? Since black women got y'all in all, help, help really get you over the top. What have you done for us lately? Mm-hmm. Didn't he say something, somewhere in one of them speeches, he said he got our back. <laughs> well, we shall see. And because right. the historical precedence is already there, 1951, y'all go look it up. More than uh, roughly 150 black women did meet in Washington, D.C. for a conference. Some of the footage is archived at Smithsonian. They did meet. They did have a rally. We will do the same September 30th through October the 2nd. We are demanding a meeting with President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. Two different at the same time. And again, we just want to ask the question. Since you have said clearly that we help y'all get in office, so what are we talking about here? For women to make that kind of statement, I think is is not only necessary, but it is groundbreaking to do it collectively. Women representing groups, organizations from different genres, from different professions, you name it, to come together to make that statement. Um, this, again, will further, because if nothing else, if they don't meet with us at school, well, it's okay. We have done due diligence. We have done what we're supposed to do as black women for our people. Because we're saying political prisoners, President Biden, that's right. You, you see, 400 plus years, Vice President Harris, 
and we will cite you cases such as Tulsa. And if you don't want to, if you want to say, well, that happened before the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was signed. Okay, let's say the bombing of MOVE, 1985. I think y'all signed it. So the We Charge Genocide 21 encompasses 21 areas. Whereas previously, the We Charge Genocide campaigns focused on police and governmental terrorism and things of that nature. Our campaign, our project is at least a three-year project, and we let people know straight up this is not an overnight thing, just as Encobra has been in the forefront of reparations. And, and there's many folks that wouldn't even say in the word reparations if it wasn't for Encobra. That's right. Okay, so, you know, I don't have a problem with saying that. And and I think it behooves us to recognize this stuff is a lot of hard work. And while many may have expectations of certain things, that's fine. But until you roll your sleeves up, until you have mm. sleepless nights and so forth, uh, we need to really put some of that in check. Really. I mean, because it's it's unfair and it's dishonorable, as I said. So, again, some of us have to say these things, and some of us will. So on September the 4th, our position, we, we start this process, and the process is boots on the ground, starting on September 4th. In our communities, we're asking people, please sign on to the letter of intent. What's the letter of intent? This is not the petition yet. This is the formality known as due notice. We're, we're bringing you a notice of intent. So we will deliver a letter of intent in December, somewhere between December 10th and the 17th. December 10th is International Human Rights Day. But mm -hmm. December 17th is the actual day that Paul Robeson delivered it to the United Nations in 1951. So, so the committee will be deciding very soon which day, based on the calendar at the UN. We now have that calendar. So, so that determination will be made very soon, but it'll be between December 10th and December 17th. Our call to our people is this. We want 400 plus delegates, official delegates, that will go with us in delivering this groundbreaking document called Letter of Intent, which will be accompanied with our first million signatures. So on September 4th, that's what that boots on the ground gets kicked off. That means we want folks to go to the website, do, uh, download the, the Google Doc, uh, get get the get, get not get the, uh, the document that just says uh, I agree. You know, the Letter of Intent, sign on to that. We're asking people just get nine people and yourself ten. Empress T, Empress T, if you if you would mention the website address, I don't think I have that, and I'll definitely put it uh, in our descriptions for those who come and listen to the archives. But could you mention the website, please? Absolutely, yes, sir. And and uh, the website is being updated uh, because we're changing a little of the language. We've consulted with some of our legal people, but you can go to the website and get general information, which is WCG 
21.com, as in We Charge Genocide, 21.com. Um, if you want some direct information or you've got questions or whatever, we are more than happy to respond to any emails. We are very proficient. Brother Jamoki could tell you, we, we, we do the email thing like seriously. So feel free to email us anytime, anything. National MWM at AOL.com. Again, National MWM at AOL.com or our National Black Human Rights email is nbhrproject at gmail.com. Again, the We Trust Genocide 21 project is connected to what we call the National Black Human Rights Movement. On September the 4th, we begin the process, boots on the ground. People can come, sign on to petition there, I mean, to the uh, letter of intent. Again, we have two months from the, the September 4th to, you know, pretty much we want to kind of be ready in October, okay? But, you know, we have some leeway. But, again, we want to take the first million signatures to the United Nations on or around December 10th. Uh, between December 10th and December 17th. That's the first phase. So that everyone will know there is the next part, which is the mass assembly, which will take place in Washington, D.C. next year. This year is at the United Nations. We want the notice to be given to them first at this point in time. Then we proceed with the U.S. stuff, which, which we'll convey at another time in terms of the strategies that and the embassies that are in Washington. The September 4th date is selected because our position is there can no longer be recognition, celebration, discussion around Labor Day unless there's a discussion, representation, uh, examination of the free labor that was inflicted upon our people in this country. And so a few days before the recognized Labor Day, we will make certain that the issue of enslaved labor will be brought to the forefront into the world. That's why we will assemble at the United Nations to make that statement along with what we call the Declaration of Self-Determination. Because, again, this is a process. And at some point, we will have to identify ourselves as an entity. Because when you're dealing with international law, at some point, you have to have a recognized position, which, again, uh, as you will hear us talk more about, in conjunction with other groups, organizations, and nations, we will talk about proceeding with what we call pre-plebiscite sessions. And again, if it hadn't been for people like Baba Herbert, Herman Ferguson, President Amari Obadeli, I would not know anything about a plebiscite. <laughs> That's how I learned it. Okay. So, so again, what we're talking about in doing is is things that we have learned from others, and we recognize their role in these things, and and are prepared to unite and consolidate and work with any group, organization amongst our people 
uh, who are also doing that work, genuinely so, because there's some BS out there, and yes, I said it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, uh, well, you said a lot. Um, people kind of got a picture of, of what we're talking about organizing and how we're planning on moving. But um, I know you have so many different, like, um, we should say substrands of the way that you're moving and organizing. And I remember um, seeing something uh, in, about uh, the the House More Initiative. Uh, how does that yes. um, fit mm-hmm. in? So Cali House, um, legendary. Absolutely. Separation that between Mother More legendary. Um, Absolutely. So what and, is and the, by the uh, way, House More um, Initiative? Yes, go ahead. Right. And, and, and again, one of the things that one of my elders made it very clear to me before his transition was he said, you've got to institutionalize your work. And that mm-hmm. elder was the great Reuben Battle. His, he was the president general of the UNIA, or one of the president generals of the UNIA. And he made it very clear to me that he, he was one of the elders who, who did embrace the Million Women March and the work. Uh, he, Baba Kwame Ture, and a few others made it very clear that the work that we were doing was necessary, and they supported it. Uh, and so Baba Battle said, you must institutionalize what you're doing, because other than that, it's going to get lost in the sauce. So in doing the, the evaluation and research and so forth, we said we want to make sure we're going to keep Queen Mother Moore's legacy alive in the way that she would want, or at least we believe that she would want, so we stayed in very much contact with uh, the sister who uh, spent many, many years with Queen Mother Moore, and of course that was uh, Dr. Dolores Blakely. Um, and so, you know, from her, we've, we've been able to get information and, and other kinds of insight that only she would know, whether people like it or not. It's true, you know. What I mean, it's you got to deal with the truth yeah. at some point. And and so we. We, you know, she stayed connected with us over the years. She, she has helped us in whatever way that she could. Uh, you know, we have different positions on other things, but there's some things that, you know, is, is, is good. It's clear. So, so as we develop uh, this, we said, how are we going to keep Queen Mother Moore's uh, vision, mission, in the way that she would want? Because Dr. Blakey will tell you, you know, she's not a nationalist. You, you know, a black nationalist. That you know, she's that's that's not really her, and she's not into some other things. But Queen Mother Moore was. So we said, okay, we've got to make sure that we uphold this legacy. Um, and and lastly, with that, before I go right into your 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 question, uh, Baba, uh, I went to Queen Mother Moore's going home services. I don't I don't recall seeing many there. Yes, I said mm-hmm. it. Unlike mm-hmm. other services that I went to, I went to Dr. John Henry Clark's, I went to Dr. Uh, Joseph Benjamin Cannon's, and, you know, packed house around the corner, whatever. That wasn't it with Queen Mother Moore's, y'all. I was there. Mm-hmm. Now, 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 again, that was a wake-up call for me then. And, and the other thing that was a wake-up call was when one of our sisters went up to speak. And was not allowed to do so at the same area that the brothers were allowed to speak. They were allowed to speak the actual uh, podium or whatever that the men and the ministers were allowed to speak. But the women could not speak there. They had to speak from the floor. I oh, saw yeah. this with my own yeah. eyes. I saw this yeah, that's in a 1997. Certain, 
church denomination. Yes. Yeah. 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 Oh, I know. I saw it. We saw it. And and I felt very bad, bad about that. And I felt that Queen Mother Moore would feel kind of bad about that. I'm I sure could be she wrong, would. I'm sure you're right. Yeah, absolutely. Sure you're right. Absolutely. So to answer your question, Baba, so we we knew that again, um, Mother Callie House and we call her Saint Callie House as well, as we do with Saint. Uh, Queen Mother Moore, because for the Million Women March Universal Movements, we created a structure as quiet as it's kept. And we have 20 sister saints, and Queen Mother Moore is one of them, as well as Mother Callie House. They are Saint Callie House and Saint Queen Mother Moore. So we we looked at how we felt the necessity to con to show the connection and the consistency in this work which is why you'll hear us sometimes say ex-slave compensation, just to, you know, keep that phrase out there. And then, of course, reparations, which Queen Mother said, y'all go get y'all reparations, children. Mm -hmm. That's what she used to say. And that's what Dr. Mm -hmm. Blakely taught us, that she would, you know, she would say these things. So right. we looked at it and said, okay, how are we going to make sure that the work is researched, documented, transmitted, et cetera? So I contact the um, Vanderbilt University, uh, which, of course, is where the Cali House Center is on Vanderbilt mm -hmm. University, the campus of Vanderbilt University in Tennessee, because uh, Mother Callie House, St. Callie House was born in that area, but I just found it interesting that it was a white institution that, in fact, right. has the Callie House Center. Anyway, right. we contacted them. And we, and, we're uh, kind of coming, coming up to the end of the show, so we have to... Okay. Well, well let me say this right. <laughs> let me say this real quick, because it's counting down... Um, we will be on okay. air still on blog talk. Um, excuse me, on Black Talk Radio stream, but this blog talk stream is going to end, but it will continue to record. So we need to go a little bit over. That's fine. All right, thank you, brother. So to to, to kind of fast forward, so the House More Initiative. It is to do what um, Barbara Riedman Battle taught, which was to institutionalize the work. So it is not just the House Moore Initiative. It is now the House Moore Institute that we are building and developing so that proper research, uh, think tank, um, you know, the, whatever, whatever the folks who are involved deem necessary to, do to make certain that the work, uh, the mission, and so forth is continued and won, achieved, etc. Um, to to learn from you know what has happened, the fact that the, the St. Callie House was incarcerated, just as the Honorable Marcus Garvey, um, you know, mm -hmm. for doing this work. And so we have to make certain that we have our own uh, emergency funds and war chests connected mm -hmm. to this. Because we already know what the enemy is going to do in some way, shape, fashion, or form. It might be a little different, but we know they're not just going to sit back and just say, oh, they, they're going to do such good work or whatever. We have to be prepared to fight back all across the board. So the, the House Moore Institute is designed to educate, uh, evaluate, train, you know, to provide scholarships when possible in the areas, in the fields that we're dealing in. We need our own everything 
and certainly not to, you know, to make certain that as we proceed in the demand for reparatory justice, that we can do so in every way possible by any and all means possible. Yes. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for sharing that and all that you have shared, you know, um, you know, I was trying to think of a word that kind of describes you, Empress, when I was giving your introduction. It talks about how how you put things together. And I said networker, but networker really falls far short of what you really do in terms of how you understand the linkages between different organizations, between different individuals, between different movements, between, um, you know, nationally, internationally. Um, you know, you, you, you really have a, a very holistic truly holistic perspective on understanding, you know, our movement and, 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 and the different aspects of our movement and incorporating that in, into the work that you do. So I just, you know, I'll continue to look for that right word, but uh, I just wanted to thank you. And, and if you want to give out your website and email information again, thank you for um, your contribution to Conversation Reparations. I, I do have a question before she leaves, uh, if she would mm-hmm. just explain sure. When you said the elder said, make sure you institutionalize your work. Can you explain what he meant? Mm-hmm. I think I have an ideal, but I want to hear it from you. Absolutely. Well, um, again, to make certain that we build and that and that you have something to build from. So it, it has to be put in book form. It has to be put in uh, brick-and-mortar form. It has to be put in every format that is, is necessary or feasible. So to institutionalize your work is to make certain that you have points of reference, but also that you have formulated it in such a way that it can be transmitted and continued. What happened from the 1950s up to roughly about the 1980s or so, what happened was we begin not to uh, document things. You see, COINTELPRO and, and just the overall white supremacist system really created a void. And so many of us really, because I came, I came what I call after the good stuff, meaning the 50s, the 60s, I went to college because I thought what I heard about and read about was still going on. I didn't go to college because I really was trying to go to college. I wanted to be involved in this thing that I was hearing about. Uh, but unfortunately, I came after, you know, right at the tail end. So none of that was really going on. My, my point is, it, everything now, or a lot of what I learned, I had to dig it up. You know, I had to really, like, go get it. It wasn't like it was right there. So to institutionalize your work means it is visible, viable. It is, you know, very accessible. We have to have things. We don't have any institutions all over the country. We have no educational facilities all over the country. No schools for our children for the most part, one, two here and there. But for the 21st century, we have few far in, in, in between independent anything from educational facilities. Where's our health facilities? Where are our um, cultural facilities that are not being funded by somebody else where they can pull the plug anytime? So institutionalized for us means that we 
we're creating the scenario. We're creating the the ideas, the concept, what it is that's going to be presented, what it is that's going to be provided, those kinds of things. Institutionalize our work. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> and I have posted the uh, website link to uh, in both places, so those that are listening later uh, or listening now, I have posted it again, that website, WCG two one dot com wcg two one dot com any final thoughts jamoke empress chief let me just add to that please bear with us on the website because it's being upgraded we are changing an administration on that website uh but feel free to contact national mwm at aol.com if you want any additional information or whatever we have folks ready and willing and able to provide you with whatever information. And lastly, all donations are definitely appreciated because we do not depend on grants or corporate sponsoring. It's the people that that we are looking for to support. So our cash app uh, handle is dollar sign H-O-T-1111. Again, dollar sign H-O-T-1111. Our PayPal uh, transaction is uh, in the HR project at gmail.com. Again, in the HR project at gmail.com. And of course, that's for the National Black Human Rights Project. All right. Thank you so much, Sister Empress. And so you've been listening to Conversation Reparations. I did just want to acknowledge that, you know, in COBRA, we did have our national convention at the end of June, and and we have not had a real report out from that yet, but we do plan to do that soon and have some of the guests and organizers of the national and COBRA uh, online convention, which was held the June 25th through the 27th. It was a very powerful uh, gathering and of, of reparations thought leaders, and so we will um, – do a show where we kind of um, give a, um, the where do we go from here and some of the highlights from the Encoba National Convention. So look forward to that in upcoming episodes um, as well. And you've been listening to Conversation Reparations. Uh, and you find out more information about Encobra at EncobraOnline.org. That's N-C-O-B-R-A, EncobraOnline.org. You can also reach um, myself directly, Brother Jamoke, at reparations j is reparations the letter j at gmail dot com and we want to thank uh, brother Scotty Reed our engineer and Black Talk Radio Network for giving us this opportunity for conversation reparations.
Thank you for using Blog Talk Radio. Goodbye.